If you have a craving for up-and-coming, potentially clueless filmmakers getting into conversations with those in the contemporary about film, art, media, and life, then Cutting It Up might be the podcast for you. Join us on a bi-weekly basis as me, Astut Adhikari, my friend Siddharth Prabhu, and Janak Panchal engage in conversations with either filmmakers or ourselves about all of the mentioned topics. In this episode, we're talking to Ronnie Sen. He's a filmmaker, the director of Cat Sticks, and here we talk about drugs, the decriminalization of drugs, addiction, and how it overall it's a human rights issue. We also get into depth about Cat Sticks and also who Ronnie Sen was during the process of making Cat Sticks and how Cat Sticks has helped him. If these things excite you, then please enjoy the podcast. So uh something that's going to be interesting about this show whoever is watching and for our guest who has disappeared um oh, is we will I'm be getting my coffee yeah. okay we should have, have like one of those technical you know technical difficulties coffee break type of thing <laughs> Mr. Ronnie Sen, director of the movie you know and the pictures you've seen, uh, start off start off this conversation. I wanted to ask all of you guys that you know what you think about the decriminalization of uh, drug use in India right now, like with whatever the high-profile uh, drug scandal, which is kind of. for the public imagination and there is a conversation around it just wanted to know what you guys think generally i think what the reality on the situation is and what's actually being portrayed are two very different things i think there's like a media smoke screen that's being created and i think that is really hindering a lot of people's perception on this deeper issue that is affecting a lot of disenfranchised people so i think i think it is important to decriminalize drugs but i just have a lot of questions about how it should be implemented and how how the government would go about doing it right i think it's quite clear that it needs to be done but how it needs to be done i i'm very confused about and for me like as a nepali person when it when you sent the question decriminalize drugs in india i just spent a lot of time googling reading looked at some of your articles and i also went on my own journey like through the internet about drugs and i i primarily really do agree with sadar but i'm much more unsure because there are certain cultural contexts that are different in india than they are in nepal right when i saw your movie cat sticks for example right and that depiction of that type of space and those type of communities and the difficulties and the realities that are being dealt there right the the most stuff i've seen in nepal like it it it's not as concentrated or as big of a community right and like i know it's bad in its other ways here and ways that i'm not too familiar about but it was like a very new space so i don't know how a lot of that space works and how it's working with bigger powers but i think i primarily agree with them so i so the thing is i'm a person who i've who has never done any drugs like i've never inhaled anything like different so 
I so I'm not sure if I'll be able to speak correctly like whatever I feel. It's just that I think a lot of people need to understand that the knowledge about it, right? The way education needs to be there about everything has to be there because a lot of people are really missing out or let's say not having a knowledge about what they're actually doing and they should know the consequences of it too and maybe if, like it's a very personal choice i mean i don't know like i maybe it might not be a good decision to legalize it or it might be it's just that the country needs to really think about it first like they sh- they should think first and then like make a decision like it has to be a very important decision like it like it's merely like an independence thing i guess no one's thinking about it or even talking about it deciding the big thing like there's not a much as much like this information doesn't circulate as well like i think i only really like read it because one is i'm i had to get ready for this a little bit and i'm not from uh, india so like i don't see a lot of people being too incentivized to find out more which i think is a part of the problem but i guess that summarizes our answer really i said one point like i was talking to a couple of my family members and something i realized is people have a lot of preconceived notions about all of this and they're quite hardline like i think a lot of people think that they know and they have made a choice for themselves about other people who have nothing to do with them you know and they have completely dehumanized a, a huge section of the society right and i think there is also a class thing happening here you know but i it's really difficult to look at these things when they're not happening in front of your eyes but you're just reading them on the paper but i think it's a very different story when you're actually on the ground and seeing it for yourself which i have not but a lot of mine i feel like i really want to get i really want to more i want to my humanity i want to increase it to these people and to a lot of people who are having the illness you are from uh, kerala is it yes no i mean you guys raised very important points of course i mean this has to be sort of well thought through it can't be whatever happens people talk about it and this is exactly what i was also trying to say that uh, i mean uh, it has to be uh, i mean there has to be a proper discussion and there has to be some kind of public engagement at some level like all stakeholders have to be taken on board and uh, you know and i mean uh, there are certain drugs in india which have recently been uh, criminalized you know recent as in it's in the 19 uh, in in 1985 the nps act was uh, uh, i mean uh, the made the ndps act in 1985 and then the ncv was found in 1986 to function accordingly uh, but uh, you are from kerala you know the, the ganja from kerala is absolutely amazing this uh, idukku idukku gold idiki idiki gold uh, yeah Uh, your friend is from nepal and he was talking about cultural differences i mean the uh, the fact that marijuana or ganja or cannabis or whatever you call it it became kind of famous in the uh, it became famous in us and europe because of this gentleman from 
Irish physician and he came to Calcutta in 1830s and was teaching medicine in Calcutta Medical College and he basically studied the indigenous uh, cannabis usage in India and took that to America and Europe. That's how it, it went there, uh, from Calcutta to Europe. And his initial experiments were uh, about, his initial experiments with Gaja were about, you know, which, I mean, 1939, 1940s, and he says that he experimented with the uh, Charas from Nepal. He writes in his uh, journals that uh, Nepali Charas that he gave to a dog and how he, the dog behaved and all of that and what is the medicinal uh, benefits of marijuana and that's what he took to America and then in the 1850s American pharmaceutical companies started using cannabis in different ways. Anyways, I mean the point I was trying to make is the, the war on drugs which the America uh, which the United States of America started in the 60s and 70s and what it culminated into, you know, in the 80s. Uh, as a result of that, our religious act was uh, made. Rajiv Gandhi was the prime minister then and uh, it was hastily done. And it was done because America was fighting this war against drugs. And if you go to the NCB website, the Narcotics uh, Bureau, if you go to their website, you will see that these very same uh, international treaties uh, uh, were something they wanted to, I mean, India had a commitment to be part of the international war on drugs and hence NDPS and NCB were kind of formed. Uh, which they still commit to. But interestingly, over a period of time, uh, policies of different countries have changed. From hardcore criminalization, it had become into something else today. Today, most of these international treaties are different. Today, most of the countries in the West are looking at drug addiction in a very different light. So the UN mandate or the WHO mandate is very different. Today they are saying decriminalize all drug use. Decriminalizing doesn't mean legalizing uh, drugs or any psychotropic substances. It means that no person using any drugs can be, I mean, uh, can be booked under any law and can be put behind bars. So that is something that people are trying to do to save communities and etc. etc. and to regulate drugs. It doesn't mean uh, legalizing every drug. That's not the point. The point is to uh, 
you know, uh, take it out from the criminal justice system. That's the that's the logic. And our NDPS Act doesn't define addict or addict addiction or there you can't differentiate between a user and an addict and a dealer and a peddler. So these things have to be defined. How can you treat addiction if you don't know what addiction is? Say all these countries define addiction as an illness, as a disease. You know, the Supreme Court of Canada says very specifically that we look at addiction as uh, a illness. You know, America looks at it as illness. Europe looks at it as illness. We don't recognize addiction as illness. So if we don't define or recognize addiction, or if we don't have an understanding of what addiction is, how can we solve or how can we tackle the issues of drugs? Uh, because drugs and addiction are intertwined. So this public discussion is very important. What comes out of it is a thing which will be a result of this discussion. You know, uh, everyone who has anything to say and all these stakeholders from the government agencies to the law enforcement, the psychiatrists, the addicts, the co-addicts, co-addicts are the uh, family members of addicts, the rehabilitation centers, Everybody, the self-help groups, everyone should be taken on board for a proper conversation and let the truth emerge from it. Because any law should be made to help the people of the country. You know, you put people behind the jail, it doesn't help. And you cannot control addiction by limiting substance. Because alcohol is legal, tobacco is legal, Ganja is deeply embedded in the culture and ethos of India. You know, marijuana was given to the world from India. Africa started smoking ganja when Egyptian Sufis uh, sort of took it to different parts of Africa. Uh, I mean, the Atharva Veda in Hinduism it uh, says that you know among the five main elements or in the Panchatattva, one is Ganja. In Sikhism, uh, the Nihang tribes not only uh, you know, smoke Ganja, they give Ganja to their horses. Uh, in Islam, nowhere in the Quran it's written that you cannot smoke Ganja. You know, I mean, there are uh, Christian churches in Georgia which have legalized uh, marijuana in Georgia. Uh, so, I mean, every religion you will find references of it. So it is not new or unknown. And the fact is, it all boils down to who makes these laws. You know, this this person who runs this uh, drug policy initiative, uh, uh, drug policy alliance. Uh, Getting the term so sleepy. What I'm trying to say is that he said, I put it out in a post. I mean, he said that if white men uh, uh, you know, used uh, Viagra and, and uh, if, if, if white men, uh, privileged rich white men uh, cocaine and black men black poor men 
used Viagra, then the doctors would prescribe you cocaine and using Viagra would, uh, you know, land you in jail for 10 to 15 years probably. So we really need to understand that how laws are made and why they are made. Anyhow. Yeah, that's a big reason why decriminalizing makes a lot of sense on that level. Because like if you're privileged, you just get away quite easily, you know. You could be doing the exact same thing, but just because you're economically or class-wise lower, you just end up in the slammer or you just end up worse. No, there are uh, written records where in Hindi newspapers where they are saying that Atal Bihari Vajpayee was a huge uh, fan of uh, Bhang. So nobody said book Atal Bihari Vajpayee under NDPS. You know, or... Uh, I mean, you go to Kumbh Mela and you will see that sadhus are smoking ganja and the armed forces of India are protecting them with guns. So you can't have, you can't, you can't use two separate, uh, you can't treat two people of the same country differently for the same thing. In one case, you are saying, no, this is part of the religion. And this is part of who we are, and this is our culture. And on the other hand, you're doing the same thing with. I mean, you're putting in putting someone else in jail for the same so-called offense. It's not done. I think. Um, I think these laws, and I think human beings fundamentally try oppressing other human beings, and they find systematic. If there's a system in place, I think people find a way to systematically oppress minorities and. And this is just, you know, another branch where people of power really oppress minorities. Of course. It's kind of like that thing with the U.S. government and how they were trying to put crack into... Inter, Absolutely. You know, and, you know, and also like alcohol scores and all kinds of black communities, you know, whatever they can to destabilize further and then criminalize and, you know, break communities at a fundamental level, you know. Allegedly, but like I will, you know, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the reason this whole conversation around decriminalizing drug use is important. Uh, you know, because all of us know that it's all around us. No amount of war on drugs of America or any country for that matter, you can't stop it. All you can do is you can regulate it. For example, if alcohol in whichever state you are right now in India, if alcohol is banned tomorrow by the state government or the central government, do you really think alcohol is going to vanish from the society? It's going to stay. It will be sold in an underground, organized yeah. uh, way. I mean, there will be criminals who will be selling it. Uh, that's that's exactly how it works. You know. I think that's so, like the story behind moonshine, right? Like there's a whole uh-huh. there's a whole story about moonshine because like they were like you can't make it so people started making moonshine in their toilets and started distributing it and people yeah. die yeah. from this like because yeah, it's not it's, regulated also it's not made in a safe way you know because like your dealer or anyone like you don't know but like if it's coming from like a regulated system that is like checked by different organizations and institutions it's less likely going to screw you what. Even then, if it screws you, you choose to buy it. 
you you are responsible for it and the thing is that and the thing is if there are so many things in your house right now which you if which if you eat or drink you are going to die mm -hmm. there are things in your fridge which you which if, say try drinking an entire bottle of vinegar and see what happens to you or try drinking the phenyl in your house or the acid you have to clean your toilet see what it can do to you you probably might die of drinking two bottles of whiskey you you can't die of smoking 20 joints you might pass out have you ever heard there is a od on ganja it doesn't work human body doesn't work like that if if you smoke too much your body will shut down you will not die the, nobody in the world has died of marijuana overdose but if you drink too much of alcohol then it's a problem and also alcohol has physical withdrawals cannabis has no withdrawals i mean i don't smoke or drink or anything my my thing is i i smoke cigarettes and i have my coffee and that's it i don't use marijuana or alcohol neither of them but the point i'm trying to make is uh withdrawals of marijuana or cannabis is psychological and less biological than alcohol alcohol has physical biological withdrawals you will have hallucination sweating your hands will shake all of this kinds of stuff with alcohol it's alcohol is a far more dangerous drug than cannabis very nicely regulated and legal and everything huh totally socially accepted yeah something something that i also notice is like when there's less information around and this actually kind of transitions into something we wanted to talk to you about um was like because there's a lot there's not as much information around right what happens is people who do it in their own communities right in a sense at times they create their own communities and their own practices with regards to it in somewhat of a rebellious form you get what i mean and like it's kind of like the relationship between sex and porn when like young people get into drugs at times you know what i mean because they don't know a lot of the factors and a lot of the things that might happen and what not what not and also like how dangerous some drugs might really be so like it's a lot of them figuring it out and sometimes there can be some malpractices or like misbeliefs that's the that's the war on drugs if if my friend or if my friend's kid Mm -hmm. doesn't know about drugs and i tell them how that kid can be safe mm -hmm. which drugs can do what exactly that's the war on drugs that you make people aware yeah if if you are teaching a kid to cross a street you tell them look at the red light look if a car is coming look on the right look on the left then cross the street you do the exact thing with drugs you inform them this is a what this is what is going to happen if you snort heroin you will die you don't snort heroin right so these are things that you tell people that's the war on drugs you know yeah, that, that that's the real war yeah yeah think taking that kid to jail is not war on drugs that's bullshit that's nonsense yeah 
But something about that which I greatly fear is that because in India it's predominantly a conservative society and because of the pre-existing stigma, even the people who talk about this or advise people are seen through a negative lens. So I don't know how that can be changed. How do you how do you change people's minds on such a fundamental level? You know? It takes years. It takes years and years of work. Alcohol in Bengal, where I live, was no less, uh, there was no less stigma around alcohol than there is with cannabis, for example. Hmm. I remember middle class Bengali families uh, hating alcohol and they used to say that, oh, you are going, you know, uh, these guys are going to go and get all drunk and it was always looked at as an immoral thing. You will never find a photograph uh, of a Bengali wedding or a Bengali gathering where there is casual drinking or social drinking. You will never find. In films, you look at Bengali films. Have you ever seen a Shottojitrai film where the whole family is drinking? Happily, you will not because it was not part of the culture. Today, in 20 years or something, today, if you look at Bangla films, you might see a scene where the whole family is happily drinking. As a matter of fact, it's nothing and it's very aspirational and it's a symbol of modernity, etc. etc. How did that change happen? This change happened because. of many other things, of the, of alcohol becoming socially acceptable, uh, being legalized, being sold, uh, also uh, it's kind of a status symbol in a certain way. So these things happen over a period of time. They don't happen quickly, you know. This reminds me, so like. I remember, like, I forget her name, but, like, I know, like, Teddy Roosevelt's daughter, she was alive around the time when, like, the cigarette market was really about to, like, kick away, and she was this very scandalous woman, like, she was the type of girl who would drop snakes at parties randomly to screw her friends over, she even traveled all the way to India, and this was a huge public issue, and, you know, she she was known for maybe sleeping with men, she was all one person to wear jeans, but something that I know was like she kind of represented this new idea of the modern woman, like the woman who can do anything. And one of the first things she really endorsed was cigarettes. So like it's and and then like a few generations later, you see these ads about these hot, attractive people doing whatever. So I think like the more you get it out there in the media, and the more it looks cool, and if there's some research that says, hey, it's not that bad, young people pick it up, and then eventually they become the old people. Maybe. Yeah, we just need to create champions of these things. Is the reality maybe? I think it's a. I think it's a question of basic human rights and dignity. Mm-hmm. Uh, for using two drugs, you cannot say two people are using two different drugs. One is legal, and for the other one, you put somebody in jail. Cannot be the justice. Uh, cannot be justice uh, or, you know, I mean, uh, this cannot be uh, 
sort of yeah the so, way in a modern uh, world or something yeah i feel like we've gone quite like i feel like we've really dug into this one and there's some things of thought i guess um Ronnie, would you like us like we have a question that is related to drugs, but like we're uh, but also in a sense it's about like the relationship between drugs and arts. So, Ronnie, under uh, understanding like because uh, we've read some of the articles and like interviews where like when you were coming out of like like centers and, and your parents rewarded you with a camera and you started shooting quite vigorously like a madman afterwards. Um, and like you know the camera became a way to help escape that world right and to you know be you know free right something that we deal with sometimes is in like the artistic communities that we've had our run-ins with is a lot of people seem to in the arts kind of do the opposite which is they believe that because we're in the arts and we are trying to change those higher level things it becomes a game of we need to start getting into certain substances at times and we need to start exploring more and more and going further and sometimes I find this is a bit dangerous because it's kind of like there's a lack of education going on in these conversations, right? And um, the other thing that kind of aids in this type of community is like you hear stories of other great artists in different fields and music or in cinema and whatnot, and how they were either very drunk or very high or on some type of substance while making some of their most seminal pieces of work. So we're just kind of interested on your thought, your perspective on this, and like kind of like what like young artists who might be at the precipice of a choice like that should consider? No, I mean, say I have no opinion on anyone's choices. If they choose something for themselves, then they're free to do whatever they want. I can only speak for myself. I cannot yeah. speak for others or what they should or should not do. What I, uh, I mean, I can only talk about the choices I have made in life. I cannot comment on what other people are choosing for themselves, right? As far as these uh, things are concerned or whatever conversations that you're saying that, you know, people are interested in what other people are doing or what other artists have done. I think it's very normal to not do it would be not normal. When people are young, they say and they do things uh, which which doesn't need to be profound all the time. You know, they obviously, if they're exposed to a person, uh, if, if they're exposed to an information which tells them about, uh, you know, substance abuse of an artist, then they would think that why this happened and etc. etc. But I don't think these things dictate anyone's usage of any substance or anything. I've never seen it. Nobody does, nobody gets into, they might use it to see what it is uh, because of somebody else's experience, but they will never keep on doing it because somebody else did it. You can do it once, but, and you can do it once for many other reasons. Uh, to think that it's only because some other person or some other big artist had done it, and hence many people are doing it, it, it will be a wrong 
assumption, I would say. They do it for various reasons. So, so if you have your own reasons and you really believe in them. There are no reasons. There are no reasons. It's just action. Yeah, there are no reasons. The only reason is that you like doing it. Mm. There is no other reason. Anyone who says that there is a reason is lying to you. Wow. There is no reason. Thank you. That has really opened things up for me now. Anyway, um, so I guess... There is no reason. If you love a woman, why do you love a woman? You like... A, you like... You like... The most favorite musician. Say you like Bob Dylan the most. You know. And I ask you, why do you like Bob Dylan? What can you say? I guess if I would just have to say it's because like how his songs make me feel. But that's as far as I could go, really. That's about it. For a heroin addict, the person likes it. For an alcoholic, the person likes it. What other reason can be there? It's very simple. There's nothing, there's nothing intellectual or complicated about it. They like it and that's the reason they do it. That's nice to keep in mind because I feel like I've been hearing a lot of intellectual stuff around this. There is no intellectual stuff around it. Anyone who has tried to understand about the birth of an addict has only been manipulated by the addict. Nothing else. That my wife left me, I lost my job, I lost my leg, I have this problem, that problem, I'm too excited. Whatever. That's all nonsense. They do it because they love to do it. And they quit when they have no other option other than quitting it. Even when they love it, when they understand that it will kill them, then they quit. But some people still find it hard to stop doing it. What? Because you mentioned only another addict can help another addict. People still find it difficult to stop doing it, even when they realize that it's causing them great harm. And as you, I think some, in one of the interviews, you had spoken about how only an, an addict can help another addict. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that, that ties up to something, that ties with something I'm curious. Um, like, and this might be a personal question, so feel free to disregard if you want to. But I was wondering, like, um, like, you don't have to mention who this person was, but like, your journey with another addict and that help, like, if you could give us some insight, because obviously we have no, like, we have no tether into that re world, really. So I was just curious. All, all recovering addicts who are clean in this world mm -hmm. are clean because they are in touch with hundreds of other recovering addicts. That's the only thing. So how is your journey with these other like addicts. So there are these recovery meetings where you can go and you can talk about your experience, how you are dealing with life, how you are coping with life and how you are, you know, living. You are either living or dying. There is no other way. So being in recovery is a process. If you are not in the process of recovery, there you then you are in the process of relapse. You are either a using addict or a recovering addict. There is nothing other than this. So
so it's 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 uh, it's not like it's a disease which is incurable and progressive it's uh, you can arrest it so stopping a drug is not a problem i can lock you up for one month and uh, body tolerance or whatever can be fixed and you will be fine but how do you stay stop how do you stay without drugs in uh, the real world you know then you need to do a couple of things which all these rehabilitation centers teach you to do you know and they are all across the world it's a very standard process of treatment um something that i was curious about that put that leads to this right I don't know how much truth there is, but I feel like you can enlighten us a bit about this. So, I've been reading that, and also I felt that addiction is really a symptom of something deeper happening in society and in one's own life. And even your movie Cat Sticks, you that all all the characters they seem to have something other going on in their life that is so intolerable, and this has become a means of like an escape. And in some in in one of the tech talks i was listening to he uh, i think johan hari he was talking about how because of lack of human bonding people turn to people become addicted to a substance or whatever uh, right we so, turn to a substance and perhaps later in and in modern societies because of the growing lonely no no that no 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 that bullshit addiction is addiction has existed since the birth of mankind addiction has been there not because of uh anything uh because of modernity because of whatever uh animals and birds are also addicted it's not only humans yeah but how do we treat that that is the crisis of modernity putting them in jail not giving them proper treatment uh giving them weird medicines giving them electric shocks uh ostracizing them from the society that's the crisis of modernity addiction itself is a very biological thing yeah the desire to alter consciousness is as fundamental as the desire to eat drink water or having sex these are carnal desires these are basic uh things of people i mean people have been using mind altering chemicals since people have lived on this earth it's nothing new right it's not because of any loneliness or that kind of bullshit that's what the that's what people think it's a it's a oversimplification and misunderstanding of people that all alcoholics are alcoholics because they are sad and no they become sad as a byproduct of their addiction addiction is not a byproduct using a certain drugs is a manifestation 
If you are using heroin, that is a manifestation of addictions. If you are using alcohol, that is a manifestation of addictions. If you are a compulsive liar, if you are a compulsive thief, if you are an overeater, whatever, these are manifestations of addiction. Obsess obsessive behavior, these are manifestations of addiction. Addiction is a primary disease. There are other secondary diseases and consequences and vagera vagera because of addiction. Addiction is not a manifestation. Addiction is a very, I mean, it, it, yeah, it's it it is bio, it's biopsychosocial disease, but there has never been any significant uh, like there there never has been any scientific explanation that why this person is an addict say among five of us uh, why one person is an addict and the other people are not we don't know the right answers there are many theories about genetic predisposition about behavioral issues about upbringing this that yeah woe, but uh, nothing nothing significant which has been proved if all four of us eat a plate of biryani, all four of us will secrete different quantities of dopamine. Why is that? You, all four of us look at a photograph of a man or a woman, the way all of us will feel about that person is different. Two of you will find that person desirable, two of you will not find the person desirable. Uh, all four of you doing heroin, one will get uh, a different kind, one will have a different kind of experience than the other and so on, you know. So, but addicts, alcoholics are very similar in nature and their manifestations, the, the manifestations of addictions are, can be seen when they are child much before they were exposed to their choice of chemical uh, you know the basic idea is to derive pleasure from doing anything negative according to the social norms the basic fundamental difference between seeking gratification and seeking happiness seeking gratification is seeking happiness by doing anything negative according to social norms say a child who steals from the house a child who watches pornography at the school, in the school, while the class is going on. Many other kids might do it, but an addict alcoholic has no self-will. The kid who has addictive behavior, addictive personality, will not be able to stop where his other normal, non-addict friends will be able to stop. The addict does it, even the addict has to face consequence. That's the difference. Like all, all four of you can start drinking, but all, out of the four, three can stop drinking on their own. One will not be able to stop exercising his self-will. That is addiction. It reminds me, have you guys seen um, TLC does these specials about people who are addicted to a particular type of food? Like they had a 30 minute segment about a guy who 
for the for like since he was four years old to like 27, he just eats burgers. And that to a particular type of burger, right? And they try to wean him off by giving him a chicken burger, but that causes issues as well. And I feel like, yeah, like I feel like what you're saying, because when I watched that in the past, I kind of laughed at it. But when I start thinking about it, like there's an innate human thing where people become more addictive, like some people are more susceptible to be more addictive and not do particular things maybe. It really changes the conversation. I also feel like I've always had a anxiety and fear towards substances because I think I'm a person who gets addicted to things because I notice I do with gaming. I notice I do with work, you know, it's very, I'm very one track on these type of things. So if that became an obsession, oof, I don't know how I'd get up. I feel like it's because there's so much uncertainty and vagueness surrounding the term addiction that people want to give it a certain meaning. And I think that's how it becoming a, it's, a, people say that it's a byproduct of something else because it's easy to believe. But that is, that is a failure of modernity and inequality. What you were saying in the initial question. Addiction is not born from inequality or modernity or anything. The yeah. manifestations of addiction and how they are treated in the society, that is directly related to how we function as a society. If you travel in a Mercedes car and I travel in a bicycle, there would be inequality. A society where everybody wants everybody to be equal and productive and who you are in a society, you are a person who is a consumer. If you don't have the money to buy anything, you have no right to be part of the society. So in primitive societies, addicts, alcoholics were not ostracized. Uh, they were not, uh, there was no inequality. Nobody treated the addicts, alcoholics badly when there was no uh, you know, uh, the disparity was not so huge. Yeah, in Greek societies, like mad term, the drunk philosophers were let to roam open on the streets, and like people used to listen to them and talk to them, and they used to engage in a lot of discussion. Like you can see, you can hear the story of Diogenes. I mean, they had other how, problems. Yeah, but uh, whatever. I mean, even say suicide or self homicide or. Poison was freely distributed in ancient Rome uh, where people could, you know, die uh, if they wanted to die. There was no taboo or there was no prejudice or whatever. But if you look at the entire Christian era in Europe, there was serious problems with suicide. That how can you choose to kill yourself? How can you be so powerful that you can defy God? Only the God and the government can decide when you will die. The government and the, you know, can send an army or order a genocide. But that is morally accepted. But you cannot choose to die. So in Europe, when people would do suicide, etc., their family will be stripped off from uh, any kind of rights, the body, uh, a dead body will be dragged down from the street. They will not be given traditional 
burial, etc., etc. So it's about power, nothing else. That you know, the power in the hands of the government or the god. So the it's they can decide. It's very nice because we're having these misconceptions, and it's very it's very nice when you just say that's bullshit because then we can kind of toss that out immediately. <laughs> Or if it was a nuanced conversation, I would have to be thinking very hard about like, yeah, and that it's there, but it's nice you can just chuck it out. Um, so, Brownie, I feel like this has been a very enlightening moment for us on the like on the reality of drugs and addictions, and also like how things, and also like what decriminalizing would be like to a certain extent. Uh -huh. But if you don't mind, uh, we'd like to like transition into some questions about cat sticks, if that's cool. Yeah, please, please. So watching Cat Sticks, we were quite curious about how Cat Sticks the movie transformed from a, something in your head at to paper to production and to editing and like final post, right? Like how did the movie change? We were just very curious about how things transformed and evolved. Like what was the journey? I mean, every day you have to keep working on a film to make it something else. You have a certain idea in the beginning and you write it in a certain way. But it keeps changing. I mean, filmmaking is all about that, you know. I mean, struggles of each day are different from, uh, you know, the other days. And you have some good days and you have your tough days and you have to choose your battle. And, you know, it's all about different compromises that you do. Because it's a teamwork, so you also have to depend on a lot of people. And you have to embrace everything and take it along, you know. It's a, it's a difficult journey, but it's a special, very... Uh, adventurous journey to be sort of able to see what uh, happens it's, it's like magic you know because you, the film gets made in different sort of parts uh, you know you think something and then it slowly keeps changing so like uh, I noticed like so in interviews you said you wrote the 17 like pager for like when people were asking like if you want to make a movie what movie um, but it seems you had someone who you worked with to, in a sense, translate into the script format. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. And I was just one. So, like, another thing is I saw in one interview uh, on another podcast or whatever that has video and that's on YouTube uh, that uh, you were talking about, like, how you, like, like, writing is one part of a movie. Like, the story is one part of a movie. But there are other elements you want to play with. Which really resonates with us, uh -huh. right? So I was just wondering, like, from that 17-pager to write it into a script, like, what was that like? It was difficult because we were trying to understand that uh, what's the journey of these characters in the film within the space of the film and you know, how that atmosphere can be built. I mean, there was no specific narrative arc as such, you know. that It was not a... It's not a. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, the struggle was to put together everything, all these characters, all these little uh, uh, stories, into one uh, holistic uh, film. You know, uh, in that one night to accommodate all these stories. That was the challenge. Something that really caught my eye while seeing your credits was that uh, Professor Moinak was was a script consultant. How was it working with him? 
like uh, because i how do you how you know him um like i follow his work i think in bfi like i i seen his some of his lectures i've also seen his stuff on sathi uh-huh. and how biggest like, fist i've seen some of his work ah uh, wow that's incredible what was it um like working with him and what like what inputs might have you given to you i'm just very curious i mean I, he was also my teacher uh, in film studies in jadavpur university and moinak mm-hmm. uh, biswas is someone who is very he is extremely talented and he has uh, he has a solid sense of the medium and the history of the medium and, and uh, he understands uh, he has a uh, he had a great sort of uh, role in the film in the way you know certain things were sort of tweaked and changed and uh, great inputs from him regarding uh, i mean from the very beginning i have been sharing different drafts of him, different drafts of the film with him and you know i i i always found his feedback extremely helpful uh you know so it was absolutely amazing and he's one of the very few people in calcutta who has such a profound understanding of the medium mm. what was it like learning under him while you were studying in jodhpur i quit uh, after uh, a couple of months uh, it was the masters program so i had just done a few months and that's it and then i got bored and then i left but uh, his classes have always been very different from uh, you know the other teachers are also fantastic but most of the teachers who teach in the department are his students uh, his ex students who studied under him and then you know joined the institute later uh, but uh, i mean his classes have been kind of fascinating because uh, because of many other reasons i mean he he doesn't really uh, and the point i'm trying to make is when he teaches something or if he's teaching history then there's a lot of uh, lot of other things that he talks about uh, mm. you know real instances and you know something else which is happening somewhere else which might not directly be sort of re- relevant to the particular topic but uh, uh, what he says about something else happening in some other part of the world or you know uh, might directly sort of make you feel the significance of that particular thing in a way which uh, other people would not really do uh, because he's extremely well read and has a solid sense of things you know uh, very rare people very very few people have that rare uh, ability to connect things to connect events even if they've happened like 100 years before or stuff yeah so to connect these things you know in different levels you need a certain kind of education yeah um also no i don't think we'll be talking too much about the cinematography because i've seen a lot of other interviews where it gets into the cinematography and i've learned about the cinematography through there but that doesn't mean it's not great cinematography we're huge fans we're huge fans. we love the cinematography but like we find that a lot of this has already been talked about at other places so 
but we we uh, Shreya, Shreya is a champion. I, I use it as references now. <laughs> like the so the shot that really really like impressed me was the one where they're inside the airplane and the ice is coming in. And it's just the way that has, the way it has been composited, right? The way light falls onto them and the way it just falls over, and the whole composition composition is very balanced. And this it just makes me feel comfortable looking at it. Like I like for me the one of the things that really ha- makes me happy is that when you look at a frame, it has to really make me feel comfortable and you know happy and pleasant, you know. So all of the frames in that film were quite pleasant and very comfortable to look at. Like even the rainy, the the frame where it's raining heavily, and it looks at the airplane, like it's I don't know, it just makes me feel really happy, and the fact that the black and white element makes it feel like it has a huge dynamic range, everything feels very calm, and inviting. No, we tried to be sort of uh, very simple. The all these. Uh... compositions or frames or whatever you say they're very simple they're not they're not difficult or anything they're very simple and that's what i've always liked you know uh, s- simple eye level stuff nothing fancy nothing uh, even if the computer is quite it's even see it you can feel it something else that is curious about was i think i'm really curious about how this movie was edited in a way because because it's it has multiple storylines not storylines but different streams if you may and like how did you like when like what decisions were made like when do you like how do you transition from one story to the other and like how did you work it out with your editor i mean yeah i mean we we've, we've been editing the film for a very long time it took us a very long time it was difficult it was difficult but it was great working with nikon who edited the film because uh, unlike many of us for whom it was the first film for nikon it was not he had worked on many other films before so i got to learn a lot from nikon uh, and uh, i had never sat on a you know editing table working on a feature film before so for me that was a that was the biggest part of my film school uh you know i mean castix was my film school so mm-hmm. editing the film taught me many things because on many occasions the kind of energy with which i thought uh, a particular scene if uh, you know would be cut in a certain way but it completely changed and uh, usually i'm very definitive uh, i know uh, if i'm shooting that this is what i want to see uh, at the end of the day but uh, in castics on many occasions the way this the scenes were the scenes sort of shaped up in the form they were uh, many of them are not imagined before so they were kind of exciting 
to see. You know, it, I mean, for me, it was a great revelation. So you learned. So, like, I've also dreamt of sitting on the edit lab of a feature film. I imagine editing feature is like a new ballpark, a new world, a new zone of thinking potentially. And I was, I was wondering, like, as a person, because um, we also like in our research of you, we found that you did like these short experimental videos, which we could not find on the internet. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Um, I was wondering, like, and that's what we're doing too. We're also doing experimental stuff, which you will not find on the internet. But like, I was just interested, like, what was like, what was something you didn't expect? Like, like th those, that fundamental learning that you got while sitting there. I'm just very curious about that. Because for me, it seems like an illusionary place to go right now. I mean, there was... Uh, like any one thing. The, the fundamental thing that I learned was a film can completely change on an editing. You can change the film entirely from what you had shot. What you had shot, you can make like five completely different films from each other. That's what I learned. I, I didn't know this before. I'm guessing when you were making those small experiments, you were editing yourself. What was that like? I guess I want to extend that question. Can we watch some of those small experiments? Please. It, like, it's nice to see experiments. It gets you thinking. Well, I'll send it to you. No, these were all uh, stupid different projects. And like I was trying to see video and how videos can be made. And, you know. Uh, I mean, I've, I've been doing photography for a very long time. But with videos, it was recent. So, just playing around, man. I mean, there's nothing profound or mm. anything that I have to say, or not that I'm like super proud of the kind of work I had done, but it's, it's just uh, a, a large part of what I do is, you know, I, I like shooting, I like making videos, and I like making photographs. I like it, you know, not necessarily that I want to make a work. The idea of what a work is or a body of work is, is something that I learned much later in my life. I got into this because I like it. So the joy of making work keeps you going. I think like we understand that because like, we, because we, because like uh -huh. I feel like we would want to just explore something, but we're too, yeah. too excited to explore the thing, to construct a narrative, to construct, like, where is it going to go? You know, it's more like... No need. It's yeah. more like... I Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. people like, the outside world really puts this pressure on you. I, like you. It stops you from doing what you really want to do in many ways. No, no, don't... Uh, just do what you want to do. I mean, there's no reason for not doing what you want. Yeah, no, yeah, which is why, like, as fellow people who are making the weird videos that perhaps no one wants to see, and we consider embarrassing half the time. But also there is, but also there is something that I want to say, that I never came to the, I didn't come to arts to make work which is different. I came to arts because I like it, and I want to do it. So see what do you want to do? If your 
aspiration is to make work which is different from others, then think about it. If that's a valid reason to do work in the first place. If you want to play cricket, it's maybe because you like cricket. But are you playing cricket to be a different batsman or a bowler from someone else? I don't think that's a valid reason to be a sports person. I think the different is really a byproduct of our personalities. Yeah, yeah. It, it's not yeah. a choice. It is not a choice. Like earlier when we were starting making stuff, we were making very different stuff. And now that we've spent all this time doing it, we, it's changed over time. It changed. But also I think it's about like, the nature of criticism, right? So, like, um, at like the place we go to, which I will not mention the name because you always have to censor it when you mention that place's name. Um, we had a project, and we decided to. I I thought I wanted to make a film that would be very fun to make for me, but also would be a fun challenge for everyone else. And by the end, we made something, and uh-huh. you know, everyone liked it in their own way. My sound designer did something he always wanted to do. My like. So that in general, they got to do things they always wanted to do. I got to do things I always wanted to do. I think like something that like is in is interesting is like when we like like released it, some we we were like, huh, this this is our thing, and you know we're happy with it. But then we met a person and they were like, you know, this looks like this this looks a bit like something that Pedro Costa did, and we were like, who is Pedro Costa? And and that kind of sullied our experience, right? But then we were also thinking, you know. We tried something. We're now somewhere else. I think what I'm trying to say is, I think like when that happens, a lot of people suddenly got on the train to let's be different. You know, like that's that's like I was trying to point out that like we've been trying to just do whatever we want to do. You know. Yeah, that's best. Oh, this is perfect. Okay, this is a short, small question. Like okay. I can see this being over in ten minutes, and then us having new watches. We we all just briefly share what's exciting us right now, you know, in like any form of art or whatever, whatever, you know, the the new thing and uh, the new thing we've come across that excites us that we are like, this is the thing right now for me. So I was just wondering, what's the new thing for you? What's the new thing for me? There is no new thing for me, my friend. I'm just trying to finish and keep up with deadlines and work, but uh, yeah. So no, no new art and no new space or no new whatever. A, a, every day is new possibilities and I'm constantly looking at different stuff and that's the life of a person like me. I mean, there is not, every day is, you know, something new and but if you say that something which touched touched me extraordinarily, uh, or you just liked it, you know, don't need to. Uh, what I liked, I liked this new new film, not new film from two thousand nineteen, called Knife Plus Heart. Knife Plus Heart. Uh, by Ian Gonzalez. Pretty cool. You know, that's what I really like watching. And I've never seen Sati Brothers before, so I was watching some of their films. Pretty, pretty cool. But, anyways, I mean, Night Plus Heart was really amazing. We'll check it out.
So that do you have something you want to recommend to Mr. Ronison? I've just been reading French philosophy. I'm reading Nausea right now by John Paul Sartre. Uh-huh. So that's what I've been getting at right now. Janak, do you want to recommend something? Um, I've been looking at photographs a lot lately. Yeah, and then I'm, re- I'm reflecting that on my own pictures. So, like, I'm collecting a huge sample. Like, I'm editing all the, all of the pictures I have for no reason. I just want to see how it turns out. Maybe I could make it in the video. I have, like, I mean, I'm making, like, a I have a collection of, I think, 110,000 pictures in my computer right now. So, I'm just compiling it all in and I'm seeing what can yeah. happen with it. So, let's see what results into it. It took, it months to like edit I think two, three, four thousand pictures. So I'm just like taking it as a long term project and see what happens. Uh, I'm interested in Harun Faruqi right now. So I've just been watching some stuff, reading some stuff and reading on about the operational image. That's like what I've been into right now. But yeah. Well guys, this is our first show and we had Ronnie Sen and I did not think this was ever going to happen. Thank you so much for Thank coming. You and best of luck. This was a lot more chill. This was a lot more chill than I thought. We really appreciate you coming. Yeah, it really does. No, no, I Take care, man. Best of luck, all of you. Have fun. Maybe one day we can do this in person. Hope so. I don't know. <laughs> Hope so. Okay. Hi, this is Siddharth again. And I want to thank Ronnie Sen on behalf of all of us at Cutting It Up With for being here on the podcast and talking to us for all this while. And I also want to thank the listener for listening to all the way up till the end. And if you are here, I would highly urge you and request you to subscribe or follow us on all the, on any of the platforms that you're listening to this podcast on because we want to create this community of listeners and we would also want to interact with anyone who's listening so feel free to drop a comment or any of your thoughts on the subject matters that have been discussed so we could we could engage in a conversation even after the podcast is out so thank you again and have a good day cheers